The BMJ publishes a variety of educational and academic articles each week. And we've designed this podcast for those who wish to skip through this selection in audio rather than flick through the magazine or a fuller version on the website. Today, we're going to talk about communication skills, specifically ICE, asking patients about their ideas, concerns and expectations surrounding their health. We're going to examine the evidence about cardiovascular examination and finally talk about adherence to antihypertensive medication. We've cut and mashed together several of the interviews we've done with these authors. And today I'm going to ask our clinical editors what they learnt this week and to what extent it might alter their practice. As we talk, we hope you'll do the same. In the studio are clinical editors Sophie Cook, Kate Adlington and Deborah Kirkham. I'm Kate Adlington, I'm a clinical editor here at the BMJ and also a psychiatry trainee. I'm Deborah Kirkham, I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and uh, my specialty is sexual health and HIV. I'm Sophie Cook, I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a GP. I'm Helen MacDonald, I'm a clinical editor and also a GP. So Sophie, why don't you kick off and tell us about um, the article which you have bought about ICE? Well, our patient editor, Rosamond Snow, wrote a really interesting What Your Patient Is Thinking article this month, which looks at the ideas, concerns and expectations model that's often used by GPs and other health professionals to elicit sort of patients' thoughts about their, their problems that they're presenting with. And we discussed with Roger Neighbour, author of The Inner Consultation, how the ICE tool has sort of become used in a different way to which it was intended and how it, sometimes now it's it's become very formulaic and has actually lost the initial meaning of, of why we, why we were so supposed what's the to point discuss of it? it stands for ideas concerns and expectations yeah and when they dreamt it up what was it meant to do the aim of this is to use it as sort of an information gathering exercise and to, to make sure that doctors cover these important aspects of a consultation so when a patient presents with a problem you want to know what they're thinking about it but unfortunately over the years it's sort of become adopted into many training programs and and people now use it almost in the exact way that you know you ask about what are your ideas what are your concerns what are your expectations should we hear what roger said yes but it sounds as if that doctor mistook ice um, and, and instead of it being a reminder, thought of it as a technique. Um, ice is a reminder. It's just a, a, a little whisper in the back of your mind. Try to understand things from the patient's point of view. It's not a technique and it's certainly not a verb. In, in some role plays, I've even had patients... I've seen, seen a role-play patient where a patient will come in and say, oh, I've got a problem with my knee. And the doctor will say, what do you expect me to do about it? <laughs> and, and, and you can see them thinking, see, I've, I've done the expectations. <laughs> ah, it's horrible. <laughs> Just imagine what it's like to have that said to yes. you. Um, that was Rosamond enjoying Roger Neighbour. <laughs> she also raises a very important point, I think, as well, which is, it prompts doctors to ask questions about things like your fears and, and your con- and your concerns, which actually you might not have time to address in a consultation. And so it then becomes quite quite odd if you're asking about things that you, you then can't wrap up. Yeah, she, I think she said quite entertainingly, doesn't she, towards the end of the article, that if you, um, you, know, if you want to ask someone about their deepest fears, yeah, really consider fears, whether yeah. you have um, adequate time in the remaining two minutes yeah. of the consultation to actually address that. And also the knowledge to address it because you know you may not be able to offer them the support that they need. Um, so I mean this article kind of trashes ICE in a way but it does still have some use doesn't it? Well I think as an aid memoir as Roger says it, it is important but it's just the way in which they're asked and, and actually Rosamond 
talked about a sort of gold standard consultation that she'd had. And and Roger Roger said that you don't think that that doctor used ice, but actually that doctor probably did use ice, but it was just done in a very slick way. Um, or it happens without you really knowing, doesn't it? Yeah. Because I think you only really use it when things start to go wrong and it feels like you're heading into a bit of a conflict with someone so. and then you think, what am I missing? It, obviously your agendas are just totally mismatched and have they got some worry that you're not addressing or you know don't feel able to voice or ask for I don't know Deborah or Kate I mean this is such a GP thing and really ingrained in our minds certainly within the UK I don't know how any of this translates to to hospital medicine in pe- with people that you see I think it's exactly the same um, in all the specialties I've covered over the years I've found it really important to get to the heart of what it is the patient wants from you and I think what you say Ellen in terms of agendas being mismatched that's the recipe for a disastrous consultation and it's really about addressing the patient's agenda and addressing your own agenda in the things that you're trying to achieve as a doctor as well. I think the interesting part as well was about at what point in the consultation you bring that in because sort of often traditionally and that's what I remember from medical school is that ice you know that was always that bit that you do at the end you know fine tick I've done it end of consultation and actually is that the most appropriate time or is it actually right at the beginning of the discussion that you have that you know setting up the sort of the agenda as you say. So is anyone going to change their practice based on what they read from Rosamond and then what we heard from Roger. I think it's definitely made me reflect on how I ask the questions. I hope that I do it in an effective manner already, but it hadn't been something that I thought about explicitly and how that might be coming across to the patients. And I think a lot of the uh, What Your Patient Is Thinking articles have that effect on me that that. I like to think I'm doing things in an effective way and then realise that maybe it's coming across in a different way to what I had thought. So it's very useful to reflect on your own practice. Uh, I definitely think the, the point that Rosamond made about what are you actually trying to get out of this question. So, you know, rather than just kind of by rote, kind of reeling off these questions, actually, what's the intent of the question you're asking and how does that come across to the person sitting in front of you? Is That's really powerful. This month, we also published an article on sepsis. There's a bit of a clinical push going on this at the moment with the Sepsis 6 campaign. We published a summary of NICE guidance on suspected sepsis. And for a more in-depth look at treatments, we've also published a state-of-the-art review on sepsis. Both of these come with infographics and you can print off the NICE one to keep as a poster. Earlier this month, we published a long clinical piece online which asks how useful the cardiovascular examination is. And it's incredible, really, that the evidence for that question isn't nailed, given how key it is. Certainly thinking back to medical school, you know, how much time... Uh, you spend being taught kind of the correct ways to do physical examination. First. Exactly. Same for MRCP examinations. You spend an awful lot of time going through, going to sort of courses and thinking about the proper way and the proper structure. And really kind of reading this, you start thinking, hang on, we never really are taught to question what the evidence is for either for the inclusion of any parts of these examination or the order it does make me think you know why we don't turn that sort of more critical eye to our physical examination skills in the way that we would to when we choose investigation for example Mm. yeah yeah and I suppose it's not just the 
order that you're taught it or how you're taught it. It's also the skill that you have and how how reliable those tests mm. are. So, for example, um, in general practice, when we're picking out little snippets of a cardiovascular examination to do on someone in front of you, um, it's unlikely, realistically, that they're going to be laid at precisely 45 degrees in order for you to examine um, their JVP. Um, so it was interesting, actually, in talking to Andrew, um, that he he felt there were certain things, and the JVP was one of them, where the technique of it was somewhat overemphasised in terms of actually getting some use out of the test. Does that mean that it didn't matter so much whether it was exactly the right angle or um, I don't know whether... Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to misquote him here, no. but he's, <laughs> he seemed to insinuate that it would be OK for them to be sitting in a chair, for example, which would be much more I suppose part of that patients. is how how many patients you see and you know if all the patients you see and examine are sitting in chairs then perhaps you will have better kind of discrimination skills part of that is about how much experience you've had of assessing people in a certain environment comparing them to others who have positive signs um so when you're taught as a student or even in your postgraduate exams the people that you're examining and the people uh, in your examinations in your practical examinations are often well or fully capable of following all your instructions sitting up doing any maneuver that you ask them to and on the ward it's just not the case and so I wonder how the validity of the test carries through to real life compared to the people that we are trained to examine. Mm -hmm. And that goes the same for the doctors as well because yeah. those people I bet the people that they use in the studies are experienced mm. you know you'd have cardiologists examining for these cardiology signs it wouldn't be people like me sitting out in general practice mm. the vast majority of examinations take place in primary care and it might be that not necessarily cardiovascular but for some other examinations we only do them once in a blue moon and so actually you know the ability to do them well is is compromised if you're not mm. if you're not practicing frequently reading as well some of the responses online a lot of um practitioners clinicians are commenting on the importance of the clinical examination beyond just the diagnostic, kind of creating a rapport with your patients, kind of building sort of their confidence in you. And what was interesting in the article for me was that there really hasn't been any research into that really. There isn't any evidence to back up that. So there seems to be a sense amongst clinicians that there is that kind of additional value beyond just the diagnostic. And that's something Andrew really brought out in the interview. Yeah. In fact, maybe we should listen to that bit now. Mm. Well, I think that the physical examination has fallen a little bit into dis disrepute in recent years, and we need to, we believe, re-emphasize that. Physical examination is important, first and foremost, because it takes the doctor to the patient's bedside. Uh, secondly, physical examination is immediately available. It's rapid and repeatable. It's relatively inexpensive, and it's safe and non-invasive. The paper we've written shows that there's substantial evidence to support its diagnostic value in a range of contexts and listeners can look for evidence uh, in Stephen McGee's book in particular of evidence pertaining to other systems. The final thing we would all want to stress as authors is that there's clear evidence that if you do not do physical examination as a clinician, you will make mistakes, you will misdirect referrals, you will mismanage some patients and you'll misdiagnose some patients. So we strongly believe that the evidence in this paper and evidence from other similar papers relating to other systems all emphasise the importance of the physical exam in modern practice. What would you suspect 
if you saw a 74-year-old man with urinary incontinence? What if he said he'd also been having problems balancing or walking for a few months? Or if his family said he was increasingly forgetful? Not sure? Perhaps you should read our easily missed article on normal pressure hydrocephalus. So then we've got this article on adherence to antihypertensives, um, and this has got a number of fascinating facts in it, beginning with the fact that perhaps about 50% of those with poorly controlled blood pressure on three agents are not taking their medication as prescribed. So there's this chunk of people who you think have got um, or might have resistant hypertension um, who actually um, are just not taking their medication properly. I found this really interesting um, to think about my patients with HIV. So obviously um, when you have HIV and you're on antiretroviral medication, adherence to that is really important because you can develop resistance if you don't take it on a regular basis. And so it's a standard question that we ask in clinic is how are you getting on with your medications? Um, have you had any problems? Are there any that you've missed recently, etc.? And as a doctor, I think you very much have to take what your patients tell you at face value um, because what else can you do? I suppose we have um, an idea of how well the HIV is being controlled by the viral load measurements that we take. Um, but actually, there are probably patients who are having problems that I've not managed to to tease out of them. And this really made me think about how the questions that I can ask, and I think the table that they had in the article um, about different um, barriers to taking medications was really helpful and be something that I use in, in my practice. Since we um, developed this urine test, we actually are very surprised to see, you know, the different uh, types of patients that there are some that we never suspected uh, wouldn't take their tablets. For example, I can think of as a lawyer who's on four different blood pressure medication. I was quite confident that he took all his tablets and his blood pressure was truly difficult to control or resistant hypertension. But when he tested his urine, we, to our surprise, um, of the four drugs, one of which was a diuretic, we could only find the diuretic in the urine and not the other three um, agents. So when I confronted the patient and I asked the patient um, um, whether um, he takes all his tablets as prescribed, he said to me, yes, I do uh, accept the diuretic because um, it, it can be a bit inconvenient. Um, so I only take it uh, over the weekends uh, when I'm not, um, I'm not going to work. Um, and um, so that was a big surprise. It's only the diuretic that was present in the urine and not the other agents. Part of what he was saying was that you can ask these questions and he believes that he's asked the open question to say, do you take your medication? And given people, people the opportunity to mm. say, no, I don't. But the development of their test, which I suppose a bit like testing for illegal drug substances, picks mm. up metabolites of the different antihypertensives and for a proportion of people, and I think it's not advanced as to know how many people that is, there's a mismatch between what they say they take and mm. what's actually coming out in their urine. And I don't know how accurate that urine test is. Yeah. So maybe there's, maybe that will be the case for a proportion of people. But what he seemed to be suggesting was that for one reason or another, patients are not feeling able to say mm. that they don't take a particular medication. And in some cases are saying that they take other medications that they don't. Mm. Um, 
which seems yeah. odd. Yeah. Does he touch at all on kind of what motivates patients to <laughs> to not to not be honest or or not sort of say the exact truth? No, I think that the closest the article can do is is come up with this table. Mm. Um, which is actually based on a WHO table, which which Deborah found helpful. It sounds common sense when you say them, but I think it's useful to perhaps revise some of these mm. issues that patients might find. So, for example, complex treatment regimes. So if people are on multiple tablets or on tablets that they have to take more than once a day or they have to take some tablets at one time, some at another, with food, without food, etc., that can be really difficult um, for patients to manage around their lives. Mm. Um Another thing is side effects. I think sometimes as doctors we underestimate the impact of side effects on patients um, because we are looking at it from a very medical point of view that these drugs are important and that they're helping. But actually it's the patient that has to live with them 24 hours a day, mm. seven days a week. And it must be quite hard to tease out the side effects when you're on three drugs yeah. for your hypertension mm. plus maybe some others for other conditions. How are you meant to identify which is the culprit amongst a whole box and as a doctor often they have there are so many different ones how how do you ask about all of them they might be experiencing one which you don't necessarily think to specifically directly ask about mm. i was just thinking obviously the, the article kind of focuses on resistant hypertension so those patients who are already on three tablets and you know thinking about asking about adherence before you refer on to specialist service but i suppose thinking about your own practice you know perhaps we, we should be thinking earlier than that those patients are only on one antihypertensive and it isn't working and before you add that second one maybe asking those questions yeah. about adherent, adherence earlier on yeah. and that article I mean it's very specific to hypertension but has some useful um, some really useful information that you could sit down with a patient and, and share about what absolute effects you might expect on blood pressure with the addition of one, two mm. or three drugs and also with the addition of some lifestyle alternatives, so how much, um, how big a fall in blood pressure you might expect for losing a certain amount of weight or for cutting out a certain amount of salt from your diet. Um, and I think when you see the different options lined up together, that's quite helpful. And I think the other thing the article mentions is also not forgetting that you need to put that advice in the greater context of someone's risk and that looking at the, at the risk um, and benefit of having well-controlled blood pressure on their baseline risk for cardiovascular disease is also an important uh, factor and consideration because it may be that for some people they they say that you know it's not such a priority yeah. for them to to achieve such a high level of control. Yeah, that that for me was a really key point from this article about goal setting, um, and actually you might want their blood pressure to be under 140 or under 130 millimetres of mercury but actually for them um, 150 might be more realistic and they would be happy enough with the risk reduction that they would get from that fall if their blood pressure is 190 or 170 systolic. And, and that obviously relies on being able to communicate, understand that risk yourself and then be able to communicate that to patient. Actually, I think the article has that obviously got the key risk score and the mm. kind of useful kind of visual aids on how to explain that to the patient. And as a doctor I think also accepting that you're you know that the different levels of risk are acceptable for everybody and we're not just treating targets we are treating individuals so we have to be a bit more flexible I think about what they are willing to to sort of tolerate um, you know and what benefit they want. 
We hope we've given you some insight into what we're thinking about when we're editing articles and perhaps too much insight into our clinical lives. Everything we've talked about is here on the bmj.com and we'll link to it in the description of the podcast. All of the interviews we've referred to are freely available. We're planning to do these on a monthly basis, so if you've enjoyed it and want more or have any suggestions, let us know. You can leave a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud, find us on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at practice at bmj.com. I'm Helen McDonald, Education Editor. Thanks for listening.